This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Joshua Cutchin is back with us on Dreamland. Joshua's been on Dreamland a number of times, starting in 2019 when we discussed the mysteries of the fairy realm. Uh, he, We've gone on a deep dive into visitor secrets. He has been with Mike Cleland on uh, remote healing and remote viewing, and he's been here a lot, but He's got, if you can believe it, this is not a small mind. He looks like a very affable, ordinary guy. Forget about it. It's not That's not where he's coming from. Uh, he's written an amazing new book called Ecology of Souls. Uh, he's the author of seven critically acclaimed books, Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch, which we have talked about, The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural sense, otherworldly odors and monstrous miasmas. Okay. Uh, Thieves in the Night, History of Supernatural Child Abductions, and Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon. All of them very cool. All of them loved by you. I mean, we didn't talk about all of them, but uh, the ones we talked about, were loved by you. You loved them. And Joshua is going to be in, I hopefully in the video chat with us soon. Uh, I'll send the, send out details about that. That's a lot of fun. It happens on Saturdays, not all Saturdays, but a fair number of Saturdays. You get announcements in the newsletter beforehand. So do subscribe to the unknowncountry.com newsletter. You won't get a bunch of spam, just a weekly newsletter. And, uh, if that's too much for you, then don't do it. But then you don't get to know about these things. Okay. Joshua has been it all. Where do you actually come from, though? Your, your, uh, your curriculum vitae on your website, which is joshuacutchin.com, by the way, doesn't really tell us much about you. It tells yeah. about what you've done, but tell us more about who you are. You're a musician, among other things. Well, I suppose that the, the simplest thing right away is to see that I'm sitting here in Georgia wearing a Wisconsin sweatshirt, and I'm from North Carolina, so that gives you sort of a thumbnail. Oh, that sketch. makes it simple. We Now we understand exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> yes, sir. So I was, I was raised in North Carolina, um, right. about 20 minutes north of Charlotte, and I went to undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin for music performance. I came down to the University of Georgia where I got a master's in music literature and a master's in journalism. And, you know, big cities have a certain gravity and they sort of pull you in over time. So I'm getting closer and closer to Atlanta. Um, I might have to achieve escape velocity at some point, but right now I'm in the Marietta area. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that didn't tell us much either. Uh, (laughs) It was interesting. It was interesting. No, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not pressuring you at all in any way whatsoever, except... What the heck are you doing writing things about a new mythology of death and the paranormal, for example? I now, read because you... I didn't hear anything in any of this <laughs> that tells me why you do what you do. And not only that, you're brilliant. I mean, these books are phenomenal. 
Well, that's very oh, kind look, of you, I so, guess. So shy, but he knows it's true. Well, well I, that's very kind of you. I just kept on wanting to interject that uh, I guess I read too many books by this Streber guy, and that sort of put me off on this path. Oh um, boy, yeah, I'm a I'm a real thorn in the side of the <laughs> of the ordinary world. I don't belong here. Well, and I think you write about people who don't belong here and creatures who don't belong here too. Yeah. In fact, if I'm not correct, uh, where are we in here? Uh, uh, let's let's just jump in here, okay? Right. At one, there's a lot of cool stuff in this book about fairy folks, the ecology of souls, and we're going to talk about this huge idea, a new mythology of death in the paranormal over the course of the, because that's the subtitle of the book, over the course of the interview. But let's talk first about the theories of the others. Because, you know, I mean, I've, I've had them around in my life, most of my life, and a lot of my listeners have too. A lot of people have. Uh, tell us, tell us your, when I say aliens and fairy folk, what am I actually saying? What 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 what's the connection that you see? Well, I was always really skeptical of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I I grew up as a kid who was mostly into stuff like Bigfoot and other cryptids. Um, but I was I'd sort of Goldilocks to my way into some of those criticisms that Jacques Vallée uh, has mentioned in the past about the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But I was always really interested in the contact scenario as it were. And it wasn't until I started learning more about altered states of consciousness and, you know, picking up again, a lot of your work that I sort of found myself more readily integrating some of these ideas. So I think that, uh, you know, one of these fundamental texts to me has always been Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia, which I think does an excellent job of demonstrating how whatever this phenomenon is, because I do agree that there is something objectively going on, it seems to recontextualize itself depending upon culture. Uh, but there's something that kind of gets left on the table in Passport to Magonia, which is what would a Passport to Magonia written in the 13th century look like? You know, So Valet does a great job of saying, well, this UFO stuff looks a lot like this fairy faith. But if you would go back far enough, they'd say, oh, well, this fairy faith looks like a lot like you know how we interact with the dead. And to that extent, um, the lines between fairies and the our, the human dead are very permeable. Um, you know, that you have stories about the dead being seen amongst the fey folk. You have stories of the dead becoming fey folk in some instances. There's just a lot of mixture there. And that coupled with that very prescient observation that Anne made all those years ago about this having something to do with what we call death were things that I think, uh, I felt needed to be explored and I wanted to sort of nest them within a history of belief about the way that we think about souls and about the way that we think about death. And I really thought it was going to be a quick little book, maybe 80,000 words at the max. And I think now we're sitting at like 265,000 is where it wound up because yeah. it well, became apparent. Incredible. What a masterpiece, frankly. I mean, it's, it's a, it's really something it really well, is. Thank you so much. It's sort of, 
it sort of evolved into a snapshot of how I think about these things and how I sort of make them all fit together because I am in a lot of ways, what might be termed a pan paranormalist or something like that. I want to see how the fairy stuff fits in with the cryptid stuff. And I want to see how NDEs fit into the, the UFO experience. And, you know, a lot of these observations have been made. You've got Eddie Bullard who drew a lot of similarities between shamanic initiations and the UFO contact experience. You've got Kenneth ring, obviously whom you worked with quite a bit, uh, drawing the connections between, near-death experiences and and the UFO contact experience, but it just seems like every contact modality has the vestiges of the same shared attributes, regardless of where it is. So into those comparisons, you can also take visits to fairyland, certain cryptid encounters. A lot of these, you know, again, these shamanic initiations, these near-death experiences, they all seem to be about crossing that veil. And, you know, the more I sort of explored this, the more I, I, I came to suspect um, and this may not be true, but it's just a suspicion that I have that the veil is indeed the veil between the living and the dead or the veil between worlds. I mean, exactly what the distinction is between those two ideas becomes very, very porous. Well, the, you know, let's talk a little bit before we go on. Obviously I agree with you because the dead showed up routinely with the visitors at our cabin. And, and of course there's always the, the possible level of deception there, which fascinates me. Before we go that, down that road, what about this, the Vedic idea of what is it about the, um, about the, uh, the, 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 the kind of mirroring that's going on. Yeah. You know yeah. that because, you know, I've been in a mirror universe. I've actually been in it physically. There are a couple of things that you could look at. You know, there is the Vedic idea of that, the realm of of Maya or the the sort of veil, rather, of Maya separating worlds. But also, if you look at a lot of these older cosmologies, there are often descriptions of things that do sound like mirror worlds. I mean, if you look at some of this older, you know, Western European fairy faith, and of course, the fairy stuff isn't exclusively Western European. You find little people literally amongst every culture, but specifically zeroing in on the Western European stuff, you find a lot of instances where they say, oh, the fairies cry at births and laugh at funerals. And there's this implication almost that there is sort of a revolving door between this world and that world where, you know, it's not really life or death. It's just which state you happen to be in like a flipping coin. And, you know, you can also couple that with some older ideas, which we don't really think about in the modern secularized West or even in the religious West, to be honest, this idea that the afterlife isn't some sort of, you know, realm where time is held in stasis and you just get to be amongst everyone who's passed on. There are ideas in older cosmologies, especially from like Egypt or, you know, ancient, you know, Imperial China, that the afterlife was again, a mirror uh, version of this world where you know, according to that, you would have to get up and work and uh, there might be technological process that happens on the other side of this veil, just as there's technological process, the technological progress that happens on this side of that as well. You know, Egyptian farmers would have to get up and plow their fields and worship all the same gods and basically life just continued. So once you take that little tidbit of information and you frame it within some speculation in ufology, which has been around for quite some time, that this is literally afterlife technology, it starts to get really bizarre, but I think it starts to get really compelling in a lot of ways. And then, of course, you know, I'm reminded of of your uh, discussion of the implant and how that was designed by Konstantin Raudave from the other side. And so it seems like there might be something to that, this idea that, 
you know, technological progress isn't something that's just limited to the living. It can actually happen in the world of the dead as well. Well, I think it must because uh, I was certainly convinced that 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 was exactly, I mean, that's what he said, what the man said. But you know something fascinating about that man? And folks, those of you who don't know this story, I have an implant in my ear. I'm sure everyone knows that. But there was a doctor who was keen to get it x-rayed, and he was on his way to asking me to get it removed. This is a second. There was a removal attempt years ago that failed, fortunately. Uh, But in any case, I wasn't going to get it removed. But whoever was involved with it did not necessarily. they, They wanted to reinforce the importance of leaving it in. Let me put it that way. So a couple of nights before the CAT scan was uh, uh, set up, I had a, a visit from two men, one of whom I know. And I say I know him because I've seen him three or four times in my life. I've seen him when he was a boy. I've seen him, uh, I had seen him when I went, I went out to the desert one night uh, to spend just a time completely alone out in the desert. And then I've seen him this additional time. And he proceeded to explain it all to me and to explain the Constantine Rodave story and everything and said that it basically had been its technology, as Joshua just said, from the other side. But here's an interesting kicker. The man is identical to a man I know well in this world who has no idea i'm going to tell him in fact we're going to have lunch later later today and i'm going to tell him this story for the first time he also is party to the single one of the strangest things that has ever happened in my life and in his i had a sexual encounter with the visitor a visitor years and years ago i don't have those now fortunately i'm not the type Anyway, I uh, there was in the room, room was filled with people. It was in a room in the cabin where it happened, and it was filled with people, one of whom I knew. And he was an intelligence officer whom I've known for a long time. And I filed that away. I, I didn't, um, uh, didn't think anything more of it. I never told a soul the name, not my wife, not anyone. I've never spoken it. Fast forward 30 years. I meet this man that I've just been talking about, the normal human part of him. And he proceeds to tell me of his encounter experience, which is total blackness. He doesn't remember anything about it except it happened And he was reading a detective novel. He was a boy when it happened. I met him when he was a boy, too, or a version of him. And he came away from the experience, he said, with only one thing. He had been remembered that he had been told to underline a name in a detective novel he was reading. And he was told that this person knew something that he had been told never to discuss with anybody ever. The name in the detective novel was the name 
of the guy who witnessed that sexual encounter with a visitor. It, it's it's like these little mystery boxes that get developed. Um, yeah. And it's this. Well, it's I'm, this I'm hoping you'll tell yeah. me a little bit about the relationship between the guy who I know and who's absolutely no idea of any of the other meetings I've had with him or his doppelganger or whatever. What are the, what is going on here? What are these two people? This well, really relates to your book. No, I, I, I think that it does. Um, so my, my editor who is a uh, Barbara Fisher uh, runs the six degrees of John Keel podcast. Uh, she, Read it, read the book, and she she loved it. But she said, "You know, it's not really just about death, right?" And I'm like, "I know, it's not. The death is sort of like the gateway into this discussion, and that's why the I think ecology of souls is really the the important thing to focus on when you read that title because it really is about not only the reincarnative process, but also seems to be about some of the ways that we used to think about the human soul that we've simply forgotten. And one of those things that I think has a lot of uh, contains a lot of explicative power or at least power to help us understand ourselves is this idea of, of polypsychism, this idea that you are not just you, you are several things, several components, you know, you might want to call them soul or spirit or whatever. Um, depending on, you know, your, your ancient belief system, you had, you know, up to nine of these things, they might have their own distinct names, but there does seem to be something to this idea that you are not just you and a part of you can go off with some degree of its own autonomy. And this is what we see in these old witches Sabbaths. And this is what we see in some of these wild hunt stories. And obviously it's at least to a certain degree, what we see in some of these out-of-body experiences because the physical self is left behind and the soul is able to turn around and watch. But it's also something that you see, you know, in a lot of these bilocation or doppelganger stories as well. And this idea that someone can be in two different places at, at once is just something that really is a universal motif. I mean, it's one of those motifs that I can actually say is literally universal. Like, I'm not just sort of like saying, oh, well, not here, not there. Like, it's something that you find really everywhere. And it's often been tied to all manner of, of, of phenomena. And it seems like something like that might be what was going on in that scenario that you outlined. That's that a part of this individual maybe even displaced from time for all I know, because I think that time plays some sort of component in a lot of these experiences, but the, a part of this individual was able to sort of wander off on its own and, and obtain this other information that, that he normally wouldn't have had access to. I don't know. When I first saw him, he was a boy. He was about 13. I encountered him at a baseball game, and he was sitting with a, a gentleman from the Department of Defense, whom I knew, who interfaced with the tall blonde people of, of, of legend and in, in, uh, in a, out in Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. They're gone now. They're not there anymore, and that's all shut down. But in those days, it was very active. And uh, I was rather surprised to see him. And I assumed he was with three children, and I assumed these children were something special because he wouldn't have been with them otherwise. And it was quite clear after a couple of moments at the baseball game, I was ended up seemingly randomly ticketed sitting beside them, but there was nothing random about it, I'm sure. Uh, they could read my mind. They were good readers, the kids. And I, so I figured whatever is going on here, um, I don't want to interface with him directly because there's all kinds of problems that I'm with the greys and 
He's with the Vons, and you cannot imagine. You, you, no. you, believe me, it's a it's a path that you don't want to go down if you're if you're is in, in, deeply enmeshed in this as I am. Mm-hmm. So I I uh, I didn't say anything to him, and they left after a little while. But boy, you talk here about fairy births and the dead, and oh. Another thing I wanted to ask you so badly is just driving me crazy. The fairies adverse adver they're adverse to iron. My cabin is un over one of the largest seams of iron on planet Earth. The Iron Mountains record storage mm-hmm. facility is drilled into it about twenty miles north of the cabin. The whole place is magnetic. Yeah, it's it's interesting because as as much as that certainly is a staple of of Western European fairy folklore that they that they have this you know repulsion towards iron or steel, um, it, and at the same time, if you look at just paranormal phenomena in general, there doesn't seem to be that same association. Even the, the late Rosemary Ellen Guiley remarked on the fact that you know some some cultures thought that iron was a repellent towards spirits, and some people thought that it actually attracted them in. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it really is kind of a kind of a toss up um, in terms of whether or not that was an attractor or a repellent. But, um, but that's interesting because I do think there are certain factors, especially like geological factors of of any sort of description, that can sort of enhance the importance of it or the ability for an area to sort of per- permeate that veil. I think that the person, the individual, the experiencer is probably the most important factor, but I do think that there are some places on earth that have a certain combination of factors that might in aggregate sort of thin the veil. So what I mean by that is, you know, you've heard people say, Oh, places with underground water sources or p- places where the dead are buried or places with certain, you know, mineral or geological components. People have said that all these different things kind of enhance how, much activity in area seas. And I wonder if it's not, you know, there's just some sort of threshold that has to be met. And if maybe it's like, if some place has got a ton of dead bodies, then yeah, you're going to have strange stuff happen there. Or if it's a place where like, well, there's not as many dead bodies, but it also has these other factors, then it passes over that threshold and allows it to be, um, you know, just a space where you get these sort of variety of phenomena called down. And yet it, it, there's something about places because, you know, like I'm here in Santa Monica and I'm on sand. It's, a, it's sand. It, it liquefies during earthquakes, unfortunately. So we're all pretty eager to, I, we're, we're, we're basically, we're floating on sand. There I was sitting on iron. I mean, it was really a lot of iron. So two completely different places, but they show up in both places very readily. Yeah, it's one of those things where I think some people think about window areas in that very John Keel sense. They're like, stuff just mostly happens here. And it's like, well, that it's it's an idea. It's a theory. I don't think it can really be applied that unilaterally. I think what's most interesting about your cabin is there were some uh, burial tumuli uh, in close proximity, if I recall. Right, n- nearby. Near, I've got to go out there again because the guy who owns it now is dying to find those burial mounds and no one can is going to be able to find them except me i already know that well and and that's the thing about that you sort of realize if you sort of look at this human history but also post-colonial nations i mean 
they're probably the dead everywhere around us, <laughs> no matter where we've been, you know. Um, my, my property probably has a couple of people who, in the course of human history, have died on the property, and you just don't necessarily realize it because it's not these mass burials that have been memorialized. But having said all that, I do think that there is something um, to a lot of these uh, burial tumuli and, and the way that they might even be constructed as sort of cosmic attractors uh, to sort of draw this stuff in. Which again is sort of a very John Keel idea, but uh, I think there I think there is something to it. A variety of factors, including location, the construction materials used in the in the building of these things. I mean, one idea that I've heard that I really love is that some of these tumuli have these layers of organic and inorganic material, and they almost perhaps function very similar to orgone accumulators, like Wilhelm Reich was developing, and that might play a role in sort of allowing enough energy to manifest to bring these things about. But again, I think. As much as I, I really like these ideas of place playing a point or place playing a part, I really think that it, the individual is at the center of what makes a lot of these things happen. And that's when you start saying, okay, well, maybe it is tied into their one of their souls or, you know, the, the lessons that they were brought here to learn or even, you know, whatever sort of ancestors might be attached to them. Yeah. Well, I feel like I was brought here to do a job and, it never occurred to anyone involved that th there's such a thing as a vacation. So here I am. Anyway, <laughs> I forgot the first break completely. You'll be delighted to know, free Dreamlanders. So I might blast you more with a little uh, banner saying to please subscribe, which you will not do. Uh, but that's okay. Here, let's do a break now. Here's, here's a break. And it'll probably be the only break in the show, darn it. Okay, here we go. Free Dreamlanders, goodbye for a few minutes. Uh, watch these things, and then we'll be back with Joshua Cutchen, The Ecology of Souls, and his website is joshuacutchen.com. We're talking to Joshua Cutchen. Cutch, as you can see on the screen, if you're watching, if you're listening, then I have some exciting information. <laughs> his nickname is Cutch. Anyway, Kutch has written a masterpiece, a book called Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. You know, I have to tell you, I haven't read anything remotely this insightful since I read Evans Wentz, this, his great book about the fairy faith. And, uh, you know, this is, in many ways, it's much more because, you, you know, we know a lot more now than we did then. Uh, so the book, anyway, is Ecology of Souls. The website is joshuacutchen.com, uh, and the the crawl went on its own. Uh, so listening free, go to unknowncountry.com to subscribe, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit about you. It, you go into DMT and... Terrence McKenna and all of that stuff is Terrence despised me. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm I sorry to hear him, that. Oh, I, it doesn't matter. He, he's he's one of a vast number of people <laughs> who who are sort of in this space in a different way than me, and you know they're strong believers in what they think is true, and but that's okay. I loved him. He was a wonderful guy, and he had a wonderful sense of humor, um, and and he was a brilliant, brilliant man. So. Uh, fascinating stuff about DMT. And, but one of the things that has recently been discovered about DMT that you sort of touch on in the book 
is that um, what it actually does, all the psychedelics in different ways do, is they, they don't enhance, they don't intensify things going on in the brain. They actually shut it down. So the ego is shut down. It's not there anymore. There's no filter. So he, can you explain? Tell us a little bit about what that means to the person experiencing it. You've done it. You've done DMT. Yeah, I, mean, I have not. I have not. <laughs> have you done any psychedelics? No, I haven't. I'm just, uh, I am a collector of travelogues, as it were. <laughs> For me too. I would never do psychedelics. I, I'm not sure what would happen. Well, I might actually physically disappear into another well, world. Yeah, I, I want to. I'm just, I, I have a little bit too much trepidation that I wouldn't come back from that, you know. Um, me too. That's exactly why I won't do it. In fact, years ago, a doctor told me, uh, a neurologist said, don't do it because your experiences suggest to me you might not come back. Yeah, and, and I think it's something to consider. And, you know, of course, there's a contingent of people who will say, well, why are you talking about this if you've never done it? Well, you know, a lot of astronomers haven't been to the moon and haven't been to space. Like, it's still okay to yeah. collect, collect you know, accounts and sort of try to collate them and figure them out. Well, let's um, talk about, we're, we're, we're both theoreticians here now. That's been established. And so we're going to theorize. What does it mean when the ego is shut down? What is the person then perceiving? Because there shouldn't be perceiving anything, right? According to uh, physicalism, the, the idea that the world is a physical place, entirely physical in the brain. If the brain, if the personality is turned off in the brain, you shouldn't be seeing anything, but you see a great deal. I mean, it's sort of a variation on the whole near-death experience in that regard, right? If the brain is shut off, how do people have these experiences where they're saying exactly what happened in the, the surgery room with the right. doctors and whatnot? Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of this, some of this laboratory research does indicate that brain activity actually diminishes under the influence of these substances, which is contrary completely to what they expected. They thought that brains would just light up because imagination is kindled. And no, it does seem to perhaps drop that that veil of Maya that we alluded to earlier. Or as you know, Rick Strassman, who did a lot of these pioneering DMT studies, would have said it, it changes your brain from channel normal to channel weird. Um, but as far as the ego, um, the ego death as it is, um, it's just something that you, you run up against time and again in a lot of these different uh, encounters. And I think that sense of stripping you of self seems to open you up in a lot of ways. Let me provide a little bit of background on that. So you see the ego death most commonly in a lot of these, uh, these experiences where you have someone's consumed entheogens or something along those lines. And uh, there is this sense of this pure consciousness, almost this monist idea that everything is in touch with itself. But there was some interesting research done by uh, David Luke and Mario Kittenis that showed that um, people who are regular users of some of these psychedelic substances do experience quote unquote paranormal phenomenon, which might be, you know, poltergeist phenomena or the sensations of levitation or telepathy, things like that. Psy effects in a lot of regards. They experience it more when they're not taking the substances than when they are. <laughs> so yeah. it's almost like the doors of perception get blown open and then you're just open to all these things. But there's a really interesting idea, which kind of ties in a little bit with your work uh, uh, in the key, which is this idea in a lot of the classical cultures of you know Greece and Rome, that if you died, 
you know, you were destined for reincarnation. And what you would do is you would either drink the drink of, of forgetfulness or you would pass over the plains of forgetfulness, lethe. And if you didn't partake in either of these activities, you would remember your past lives. And the people who decided to forego that would, um, would remember and they would become the seers and the prophets and the prophetesses of their time. And that seems quite similar to me in what a lot of these people who have near-death experiences accomplish. They they remember their experience. They, they've had that sort of ego death where they've been separated from their old self, from their old lives, and they remember. Like people who have near-death experiences and don't have any memory of something miraculous happening generally don't exhibit these things. But people who do are the ones who get clairvoyance and telepathic communication. They see spirits, things like that. So I think that's interesting in and of itself. But a lot of this ego death seems to be very much uh tied into it goes hand in hand with this idea that i ran into across a lot of different contact modalities which was the idea that one should try to die to death and that was sort of the highest attainment that you could find this is probably what was the motivating reason behind the eleusinian mysteries of, of ancient greece yeah, is that and also yeah. it's a huge thing in tibetan buddhism Tibetan Buddhism, I think you could make an argument. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ray Hernandez's uh, free oh, studies. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of his correspondents said similar things, that their fear of death had been obliterated. You find that in the near-death experience. <laughs> yeah. She had an NDE, and uh, that was it. For she, she died a conscious death. She decided when she would die. She did it all. She organized it. And she was never scared for a second. And and that to me, I mean, that's such a that's such a gift because so many yeah. of us, even if we don't realize it, we've incorporated it so much. This paralytic fear of these things, and you know, yeah, an argument. Even, be- I mean, she even she even organized a method of contacting her, of enabling her to contact us, the white moth, which my listeners know all about, and a lot of them have had the white moth in their lives, and she's very very active still. Uh, she said, I'm not Anne anymore, but I'll always be Anne for you. And it meant all of us because she shows up in a lot of lives. And, you know, so if, if we can, I'm not trying to be in the driver's seat here, but this is such a great opportunity to share this. Um, the fact that, that she returns as a moth, I think is, I mean, it's so symbolically laden. Um, Tell us about and, the symbolism. Well, you know, you've got you've got a lot of these different figures throughout a lot of different cultures that are called psychopomps. And if you're not familiar with that term, you are just through cultural osmosis. We think of, you know, some of the celebrities would be like the grim reaper or the angel of death or, uh, Anubis in Egypt or Hermes in Greece, um, Odin and, or Val- Valkyries and some Norse mythologies. But these are figures that lead you across that threshold. They take you and they guide you across that threshold. Depending upon the certain religious system, you might actually see them crop up in your lives during points of transition as well. Not only these figures, but also you see um, certain natural phenomena like the sun and the moon serving the psychopomp role of carrying souls to the afterlife. And you also see animals. And the animals that you see almost embody, almost always embody themes of companionship and or transportation. And those are things like 
dogs, obviously, leading you and guiding you and being a faithful companion. Horses, which can take you places that human beings can't go on their own. Birds, which can travel to places that they can't on their own. And also, you know, just anything that is winged, including moths. And, you know, it was very common in certain Mesoamerican societies to think of uh, moths and butterflies as being psychopomps that actually carry the soul away on your wings. And if you look at this psychopomp motif, which obviously ties into that, that with Anne, but um, if you look at the psychopomp motif, a lot of the behaviors of what, you know, popular ufology would call UFO occupants seems to mirror a lot of the behavior that these psychopomps have. And what's more, I mean, the UFO is, is a transportation metaphor. Like that's primarily what it is. It's what everybody talks about. Who's interested in UFOs, where they are, where they come from, how do they go here? Look at the way that they travel. It's all about transportation and transportation metaphors are almost always metaphors of transition to the other world or to the other side. Well, you know, it, we know, at least I know, and that the other side does have technology because I'm wearing some of it. And uh, so, therefore, why wouldn't UFOs be technology from another world? Now, they got, that gets me to the fact that I have, A, been in another world in a Jeep with another guy's kid, which my listeners all know these stories. I, you probably do, too. And... um I've ridden a bicycle in another world down this down the street here about a year ago, year and a half ago. So, uh, are these worlds? Is there really sort of an ethereal world of the dead, or are we kind of oscillating back and forth between two very physical universes? You know, I, I have a couple of suspicions, and that's all that they'll ever be for me. Um, our suspicions, you know, I. I hesitate a lot of times to go down the interdimensional rabbit hole because I think that we conceptualize dimensions in a pretty strange way. Like we think of it as a place that you go when really, if you look at, you know, essays like Flatland and whatnot, it's about, it's about, you know, if, if someone is a two dimensional figure and you put your finger on the page, they're not going to see your finger. They're just going to see a circle or a dot. Right. So I think that sometimes we just glitch in and out of these other things. Um, and I think that sometimes we go there um, wherever you see an instance of missing time, which happens in yes, the UFO experience, but also fairyland experiences and also NDEs and also some cryptid encounters, much to my surprise. Um, and uh, you know, even in some instances of, you know, shamanic traveling or, or out of body traveling, things like that. I think that implies that there's been some sort of, you've gone somewhere, right? And then you have these other experiences where people don't report these sensations of being in another place. They don't report missing time. They don't report the Oz factor or any of these things we've come to think about signifying a transition of you into another space, but something else comes over. And, you know, that might be something as like the Bigfoot sightings or people just seeing a random critter of some sort. And I think that that's perhaps the opposite happening for them. They're, they're stepping over into our world. And the idea that I like is that, you know, there are some, some visitors in a college dorm room on the other side somewhere smoking DMT or something <laughs> and they're popping in. Um, but, you know, you know, I, I think that's, I think that's, that's a possibility, but I do think that it, it runs alongside us. And I, I think that it's inches from your, from your nose right now, you know, um, that's what I suspect. Yeah, and, well, and it's certainly true in the unquiet flat, as my friends call this apartment. <laughs> I love that, the unquiet flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, 
I don't know if it's, I think that our terms were so beholden to a lot of these, this terminology, uh, you know, afterlife implies the dead, but other world is kind of a little bit fits a little bit better because it implies that it's not just exclusively a, a domain for the dead. I just think that's a place that a lot of these things, a lot of this energy comes and goes to and from. Um, and you know what? Something else I find really interesting is that if you look back across the cultures, this other world was always, you know, across the sea. Oh, it's over that mountain range. Oh, it's a distant land to the west. And to get there, you would take, you know, usually some sort of transportation, a horse. You know, you'd be carried into the afterlife on a horse or on a boat, a magical flying boat even. River, river sticks. Uh, Ex- exactly. Exactly. Um, ferry and ferry, any connection between the two words? No, no. actually not. I was surprised, but no, not. Um, yeah. That would have been great. That would have been great, but no. I thought so too when I said that. saw that in the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the 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 boat is really a psychopomp symbol. And what happens when a culture, a global culture, has mapped more or less every square inch of the planet and we find that there isn't the other world here on Earth? What happens to that? I would argue that it gets transposed to the stars and that all that baggage that we've always had of the psychopomp's boat, of the, you know, the transport, of the sun pulling the or the horses pulling this chariot of the sun across the sky, all that gets transposed to this very 20th, 21st century motif of, of the UFO experience, I think. And yeah, excuse me, folks, for the eye. I, I have major allergies as always. I think everybody does these days. Anyway, um, oh, I have remembered the break, but I think it's not a break. This is the end of the show for the Free Dreamlanders. So uh, the book is Ecology of Souls. As you can hear and see if you're watching on video, it's a load of fun. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you just uh, can't put down. And so I had a lot of a lot of fun with it. I don't, I don't actually interview people whose books I don't enjoy, because, you know. And um, anyway, and his website is joshuacutchen.com. Thank you very much, as always, for being with us on dreamland and we hope to see you back again next week it's a- this is whitley streber we're going on now subscribers keeping on keeping on joshua has just secretly snagged a smoke from one of those vapor things uh, uh we have um mitch uh, mitch uh, horowitz on and he smokes just openly and um that appalls me. I'm, I have never touched a cigarette in my life or any kind of tobacco or grass or anything like that. Well, you know, nicotine is, I have found, I shouldn't be lecturing you on this of all people, but I have found that nicotine is great for writing. And I was doing a lot of writing uh, in a, in a park that of course, just so happened to be a civil war battlefield. I didn't realize that until later, but I was writing uh, in the park and I was, I was smoking black and milds. I'd only smoke when I would write. And then it got to be November and it got cold. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? And my wife's like, well, you're not going to do that in here. So, so I, now that I'm, when I'm home, I, I have a little bit of a vape every now and then. So. Well, good luck with quitting. That's all. Yeah, I thank you. Say. Yeah, fair enough. You, you need to quit. It's not good for you. Vaping is no, no, is just as dangerous as smoking. Okay, now, you know, you say in the book, in you, we talk. Let's talk a little bit about the master of the key. You describe him a little bit differently from the way I see him. You say him a wizened old enigmatic being, tiny. He was actually just a, a man. He was slight, and he wasn't wizened. He was old. 
mm. but he was a rather nice looking guy actually i mean i uh he um especially if he happens to be me from the future i refuse to <laughs> admit to wisening <laughs> and Fair enough. Think he was me from the future anyway here's this uh thing that you you quote uh about meditation this is why we have been so insistent that you meditate the master says otherwise we will lose you when you die and we don't want that if a being cannot self-maintain after the elemental body no longer does it automatically it is absorbed into the flux of conscious energy you go into the light as it were uh now you go on to talking about DMT and Terence McKenna's comment. He had introduced a famous Tibetan Lama, which I think might have been the Dalai Lama, actually, to DMT. Okay, he was really and coy about that in all his in all his lectures. He was like, "You he know the coy. name," and it's like, "Yeah, yeah, no, he was coy about it." But everybody knows who it was. In any case, the Dalai Lama did this or the Lama, the unnamed Lama, did this, and commented that when he saw the visions of DMT, he said, it's the lesser lights. You can't go further than that without breaking the thread of return. And that really resonated with me. Because when I, when she died, I uh, went with her. I went through the bardo with her, with these great looming beings watching every move, like they were waiting for some reason to get to her. And I was guarding her. I was never, she was no way she was, they were getting her. And then she goes up, up, up into this, Blue, unlike any sky you can imagine, the most wonderful blue. And she's looking down at me with this very, very conscious, I would describe it was a face in a state of super consciousness. And then I stop. I stop. I can't go any further. The silver cord, the thread that he talks about, had stopped me. He's right. He was telling exactly what happens. Exactly what happens. I, I've heard enough of stories, not only like yours, but I've looked at all the literature and the number of people who have talked about that Bardo experience and have described it to a T. I mean, Carl Jung thought that, suspected rather, I guess I should say, that the, you know, the Tibetan lamas knew what they were talking about. Like this, this is such a close match for what people report. Gregory Shushan, who's uh, one of the leading near death experience researchers feels the same way. It really does seem to be a pretty accurate depiction of, of what goes on. And uh, I mean, I can sit here and talk about what I've read all day, but for you to have that sort of uh, a profound experience is I mean, you don't suspect these things. You know these things, right? But it's just interesting to me that, that you know, we spend so much time when we're into these subjects pontificating and, you know, suspecting and, and sort of, you know, hedging our bets. But um, 
it's really interesting to think that, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, like, no, we got, we got at least this part, right. You know, as a, as a yeah, species, like we, we got this part, we, right. We, yeah. We know, yeah. we know this stuff. We do yeah. know this stuff. And you know, it's my, my the long now lifelong lifetime experience with death that I, I've had, especially going through the experience of being the, the husband of that, the, that amazing woman back there and going with her through her own death experience. Uh, I have to be very careful because I'm eager for it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm not scared of it in any way. I'm, I'm just, I think it's going to be great fun, frankly. And, and no matter how it comes, because, you know, I'll get out of my body soon enough. If I get catch on fire, get trapped in a, in a cave in or some awful <laughs> thing like that, I'll get out soon enough. And, well, uh, that's that's part of what I that's that's part of what I find really interesting about you is that like I, I feel like you've you know we mentioned in the last hour about this dying to death thing like I think that's happened to you a couple of times, yeah um, you know not the least of which was uh, on the plane trip um, that you talk about in transformation. Um, I wonder if that was a plane. I wonder what that was. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Just call everything into the, question. That was the experience with the nun with the dried owl in her suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was definitely at another edge of reality on that on that trip. I was a, you know, I was just a totally, total little old boy. I mean, I, you know, twenty years old or something, and I was not in any way ready for this. But still, it it was it was exciting at the time. Well, and now, that that and the fact that you know you've taken the time and you've had the discipline, and I'm still working on it myself. But you've had the discipline to to meditate as often as you do. That's one of the things that you find a lot of these traditions talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, that's that's one of the things that a lot of these traditions talk about is like you need to do that so you don't get basically overwhelmed at the point of transition, so that you can actually you know keep yourself together. Which is yeah, you know, I, I do it. At, I do it about, at yeah. one o'clock Pacific time with a uh, group of people from the website who come every single day, seven days a week, just like I do. And folks, if you, if you think you can do that and want to, it's 25 minutes at 1 PM starts at 1 PM. Mm-hmm. And it's a very tight, small group uh, because not a lot of people have that time and can commit to that kind of a rigorous thing. But if you can let me know, Whitley at Strieber.com, I'm here. Um, it doesn't cost anything. So of course not. I never charge any, I don't charge anything for anything. And I charge as little for this website as possible, but um, I'm not homeless yet. Thank God. Okay. Human deaths and fairy births. There's a, you, you talk about what seems to be a, a kind of uh, 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 an oscillation, if you will. Tell us about that. That's, that's a really elegant way to put it. Um, so I had mentioned earlier these these figures called psychopomps, and there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that fairies are explicitly psychopomps. In a lot of the literature, they don't seem altruistic enough to be psychopomps, which that may or may not resonate with your visitor experience, but... Um, no, they're not altruistic. Yeah, yeah. They, they um, are spiritually altruistic, very altruistic, right. but they're tight as... You know, they could probably help me make money and all kinds of things, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, 
you do find some stories here and there. Uh, a really interesting account out of, uh, I can't remember if it was Ireland or the British Isles, but one or the other, um, of a vicar who was being dragged away by the fairies. And of course, in Scotland, you had the, the fairies that would take human souls to hell once every seven years to pay off a debt. You do have the Welsh psychopomp Gwynep Nudd, who was sort of a deity who got turned into a fairy king who would also who was an actually explicit uh, psychopomp. So there does seem to be some sort of relationship between fairies and that death process to say nothing of the fact that we have plenty of stories of people, again, becoming fairies or, or sort of being seen in the company of fairies after death. But what I think it's interesting is that if we can suppose that there is some sort of duty that they were charged with and helping us make that transition, then what does that imply for the body of legends known as the midwife to the fairies? The midwife to the fairies stories are where, you know, some sort of mysterious stranger, usually often rather uh, a man in black (laughs) on a, on a black steed or a black coach uh, drives up and recruits a young lady uh, to come to his wife's birthing. And the wife, as it turns out in these stories, invariably is a fairy woman. And she's been asked to help a fairy birth happen. So it's, I think there's something elegant about that. That is that oscillation, that sort of mirror um, inversion that exists. The idea that maybe they take us from this world into the next. And at least at one point we were tasked with doing the same for them, bringing them out of that world into ours. You know, Um, I think it's, it's an elegant idea that when you couple it with the, way in which fairy folklore is so tied to death. I mean, there are two full chapters of it in the book, in addition to being sprinkled out everywhere else, um, really does suggest that there's something to that idea. What about um, modern fairy seers? Uh, we've had a few of them on the show. Very interesting people in an, in, on interesting journeys, and some of them at least say that they have contact with these beings all the time, and I can believe it because they're definitely round. I mean, they're, they're real. So, uh, what about, you, you ever met any fairy seers that you could talk about? I think you do mention some of them in the book. Yeah, I, I've met a few here and there. Um, and it's always some of my biggest, one of my biggest concerns is, uh, how they differentiate that from other sort of for lack of a better term, spirit phenomena. I mean, you know, we can look as far back as Emanuel Swedenborg, who says, you know, don't trust spirits. They, they lie with everything they say. So, you know, are these people actually interacting with spirits or not? I don't, I don't know. Um, but there do seem to be people who have an affinity for these things. And uh, it seems like whenever they make contact that these things can appear however they please. Um, a good example of this is someone that I would sort of lump into this category broadly would be my editor, Barbara Fisher, um, who has had a lifetime of, of strange uh, experiences, but not the least of which is a series of, of lights um, that would appear behind at least one of her homes. And she said she was uh, out back one night when she remembers distinctly that one of the lights approached her. And as it got nearer, she saw that within this light was a tiny little winged effete woman. And of course she was, you know, a big fan of Evans Wentz and all that stuff. So she realized that that's more or less a cultural construct. You know, we don't really find fairy wings in a lot of folklore per se, especially pre, you know, pre theosophy, pre Shakespeare. But she got an impression from this little, you know, textbook classic Disney fairy as it approached her in the light. And the impression was we can look however we damn well please. (laughs) So, 
I do think that there are people who who have these experiences to this day. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I could tell you when I, yeah, it was February about three years ago, maybe as many as four. Time passes quickly these days, it seems. But anyway, I was out riding my bike on a lovely afternoon in February here in Southern California, and I was on a very shady tree-lined street, and I hear this. And I look up and I see, it sounded like wings, like insect wings, mm -hmm. but very big ones. And what I see is what appears to be a man about, uh, wait a minute, there we, about yay long, mm -hmm. wearing a tan overcoat. And he has wings like a giant fire, a, a dragonfly. Yeah. And he's, flying straight down the middle of the street toward the <laughs> at an altitude of about 10 feet toward the ocean and he flies on off and i never see him again and i think to myself you know whitley remind yourself never to waste money on psychedelics you <laughs> yeah seriously you don't, I mean... any, you, need to, you don't need any money spend any money on psychedelics now let's Hope you're not in such a hallucinatory state that you can't ride the bike home. But well, I was not in a hallucinatory state at all. I mean, that that might be why the doctor said don't do it. Is because you, you, that's you exactly already, why he said you're already, yeah, you're he already said, part of it. Yeah. Oh, that was years ago. He said no. What happened was I, I went to a party. It, this is back. Uh, actually, it was before all of this stuff happened, uh, and I went to a party. And there was people smoking grass in one of the rooms. And I was in there for about five minutes. And I got uh, high, but I didn't realize it. It was not a mm -hmm. noticeable thing. But then for the next week, every time I walked back and forth to work, I saw myself passing in the street. <laughs> and I was telling yeah. Ann, and she said, Whitley, you're still high. And I said, why are you high? I'm not high. I... I she said, Whitley, you see so many weird things. You you should never, never smoke marijuana. <laughs> and um, then the next weekend, we went to another party. And I complimented the hostess on the goldfish in her lampstands on her, on her, <laughs> beside her couch. And she and says, we're going home. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you're still high. There are no goldfish in those lampstands. <laughs> so we went home. And then I told my doctor about it the next day and he referred me to a neurologist who, mm -hmm. who basically said what i told you yeah it's interesting like i feel like a lot of people uh sort of dismiss those qualities of marijuana but like it can definitely make you feel and who knows maybe actually you know produce like a sense of dissociation or that time is working in a different way or any number of things like it's well, there's it was something hallucinations yeah. for me it was yeah. definitely hallucinations so uh, <laughs> we've been talking about ego death and, you know, you make numerous references to one of the great fascinations of my life, which are the lost mysteries of ancient Greece, the Eleusinian mysteries. And you seem to know a lot about that. Can you tell us what, what they were first and, and then tell us a little bit about what may have gone on there? Well, I know a lot about what we speculate. I don't think anybody <laughs> really has no, the market. No, there's cord. no record. There's yeah. no record. Yeah. Um, but they were these uh, these rites uh, that would happen um, at Eleusis, 
where people would just describe them as being the most transformative experiences possible. And, uh, and it's been very vague throughout the historical record, but you can sort of see hints here and there. And a lot of them do point in that sort of direction of that dying to death motif that we talked about. You know, there, there are allusions in some, I believe in literally in some graffiti in the area that say things like, you know, blessed is, you know, so-and-so because they no longer fear death or because they've seen what life is in the Eleusinian mysteries. So a lot of the speculation that has welled up around that, and this is, uh, been uh this has been sort of explored in books like brian morescu's uh the immortality key but uh it seems as if one of the more popular lines of speculation is that it was more or less a near-death simulator i mean that's the way i like to think of it which is simulator that's 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 shamanism that's well, no, it, it, it totally is. I mean, it's it's got it's got the themes of you know going underground, which was de- apparently a part of this, um, and beholding things that just frightened you. There might have been some uh, some psychotropic uh, substances that were involved, perhaps uh, a, a liquid that was drunk, and the idea is that it sort of put you through the ringer, and you came back, and you know you sort of had this epiphany about what life is, but like. Not only is it is it the shamanic thing, but it's also again, like I've said, it seems to be all these different contact modalities. I mean, it's it's uh, the number of people that I've I've heard describing similar themes um, under the influence of things like ayahuasca or even psilocybin is is remarkable. And it's always this theme of descent, descent into the self, that katabasis uh, motif, descending into the underworld, the orphic motif, uh, the motif of you know the again psychopomps carry you into the underworld right so it's again that idea of turning inward and uh discovering yourself being literally or figuratively dismembered then being reconstituted again to be bet to be made better it just happens time and time and time again and it's hard to not read that in a lot of the a lot of the ufo literature what we would call you, yeah productions. yeah let me ask you this if you know if you go on and listen to the vast number of podcasters and and uh Wise people, the Lou Elizondo's of the world. Uh, you hear stories of aliens and aliens and aliens, and you know I've been with them. I've been, I mean, I've been in a room full of them, and uh, uh, they they were diddling with me and uh, on the communion experience, and it was totally physical. So, and yet we've been talking about them being sort of on the shadow line between physical and non-physical and uh, that they're related to the fairy folk and stuff. Why is it that there is this difference between, and and in the inside, they still hasn't come out publicly, but I don't care. I'm going to talk about it anyway. Uh, There's a lot of research and applications, successful application of information derived from analyzing the materials that are from the donation site that Diana Pasulka talks about, and also from Roswell and from other sites, I would presume. So uh, what is, where are we here? It looks on one level, like it's aliens from other planets. And, and speaking of Linda, if you talk to Linda, she'll tell you the list of the names of different species and where they're from and everything. So there's a, some kind of disconnect here. 
can you square the circle for us? Do you think I, I, I can square the circle for myself, which some people might resonate with. Right. So you said that it sort of looks like aliens to us and there's obviously this physical component. Well, you know, if, if you are blind or you've got all the lights off in a haunted house, it sounds like people, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> there seems to be something interacting with the physicality of the, the house. You know, if you spread talcum powder on the floor, you might get footprints the next day. Doors will slam. Voices will moan. Lights will turn on and off. Yeah, in fact, isn't... you're in an American Airlines plane right now. Voices might moan. Yeah. No, is that? Well, you know, there was that flight that went into that crash in the Everglades where they put uh, old pieces of the, the the airliner back into new planes. And they started having hauntings. Uh, that was an old story. Flight 401, I believe. But yeah. I guess I guess the point that I'm making is that, like, I think we're starting with sort of problematic first principles of the things being physical or non-physical. So ghosts are a good example of something that I think we would all agree are non-physical by a lot of our definitions yet seem to be able to interact with the physical world. You know, the earliest parapsychological literature talks about spreading talcum powder on the floor and waiting for footprints to manifest. Similarly, if you look at psi phenomena, which is something that I've, I've, I've often said, it's, it's the hill that I will die on. Like all this other stuff, I'm willing to say maybe I'm wrong about this or that or the other, but a lot of this psi research it's done in laboratories. It's done very well. Folks like Rupert Sheldrake and Daryl Bim and uh, Dean Radin are doing great work. And that is a non-physical phenomena. Those are non-physical phenomena that seem to be able to interact with the physical world and to receive information from the physical world and, you know, vice versa, even perhaps move things and examples like RSPK, psychokinesis and things like that. So I think that this idea that things have to all be one or all be the other is sort of a, a false standpoint to take from the beginning. Now, I think, and I think you would agree that there's life somewhere in the universe. That's, I think that's out of the question for me in terms of, the somewhere in the universe there being intelligent life. I think that's, you know, of, it's, it's yeah. so big that the scariest thing is it's so quiet here. Yeah. I think this is a school and I think the gates are closed. <laughs> well, it's, it's either a school or we're in the middle of a dark forest yelling when we shouldn't be yelling. Right. <laughs> like it, we're either making a target out of ourselves or, or this yeah. is a place to be learned. No, it, it's um, a school. All right. Believe me. Well, and, and, and I would, and I would agree with that. So, you know, I'm not necessarily ruling out the fact that there's some sort of extraterrestrial component in this, but so much of this stuff does seem to bleed over into the lines of non-physicalities or being physical whenever it pleases it, you know, just like the theory, right? We right. can appear it's however like we can. Well it can be physic as yeah. physical as it wants to be. Now, of course, you know, the problem that people run into, and I get into this, into this a lot with people criticizing what I talk about, is they'll bring up things like the metamaterials and like crash saucers and whatnot. But I think that if you, if you use a model that's a lot more akin to saints relics or, you know, if you ascribe to paranormal Bigfoot, Bigfoot prints, but also poltergeist cases like a ports uh, or a lot of the psychic questing that you saw in the 70s where people would get these magnificent ports like medallions and like really ornate things that never had any real chain of custody, never really had any provenance to where they had come from, but still manifested seemingly out of thin air. And I wonder if that's not what we're seeing when we see a lot of these metamaterials. A good example that I like to use is that you know, if Thor's hammer existed or, you know, Hermes's Kiri Kion, his staff, and we had a piece of it, what would that analysis look like? 
it might look like a lot of the analyses that you see talking about these metamaterials. Oh, it's it can't be made in this known universe. We don't know how it was made. You know, things similar yeah. to that. Yeah. Well, that's right. Um, Jacques Vallée, I believe, has talked about uh, materials that he was involved in the in, in analyzing that the isotopic ratios were not from this universe. Right, which, which to me, I mean, might as well bring in, might as well be bringing in discussion of another reality entirely. Yeah. Well, quite possibly, but how how is it that it's stable in this reality? Because everything I have um, ever read about that would suggest that something from a parallel universe could not l- exist here for long. Um, or, and the same is true of something from another level of time. Well, and, you know, that's something that I think is is at least obliquely supported by some of the research that I've done into smells, because a lot of times it's the smell of entropy or the smell of decay that's involved. So it's this idea that these things manifest and then suddenly start to lose their connection to this reality. You know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I do think, though, that if these things, I mean, so people will often say, well, why is the government being so secretive if it's not aliens? And, and my response to that is, you know, which upends your understanding of reality more? That reality resembles close encounters of the third kind or that reality resembles the Iliad or the Odyssey? Like, I know which I find weirder. <laughs> like, I find the latter far weirder than the idea that we're living in a sci-fi film. Well, of course, there's that book that Linda Moulton Howe talks about ancient, I think it's called Ancient Greek Gods and Their Lore Revisited, that's supposed to be talking about their actual reality as non-human beings. Um, now, let's we've sort of been been touching on beings of different states, and you have a lot of material in the book about... Uh, different states of beings, uh, therian tropes, uh, fairies, different states of being. Can we sort of lead into that with uh, the higher self and doubles? Because it kind of relates to the story about the guy and and, and his various doubles that are he, the guy who's in my life now mm-hmm. and the other versions of him that I've seen and interacted with. Well, um, so an idea that I've resisted for a while, um, and I realize that it's just my own biases for resisting it, is this idea that these phenomena might be self-generated. And I don't mean hallucinatory or that people are mistaken. I mean that something about ourselves actually is able to project something other um, out, which kind of ties into our earlier discussion about wandering souls and having multiple souls. But um, there there are enough indications in the literature, I would argue that suggests that some of these things that we encounter are our higher selves and we just don't realize it. I mean, the number of spiritual messages that people receive from UFO occupants, um, the number of things that are said, which seem almost, you know, nonsensical. I remember reading some in the communion letters where somebody meets a, a being that calls itself God and they say, you know, what's your name, Bill? And it says, well, what's your name, God? And he goes, Bill, God is Bill, Bill is God. Like things, things like that, um, that suggest to me that, that perhaps we might be, um, projecting these things or that all these distinctions that we've set up between ourselves and other things are purely arbitrary in the first place. So you have that to contend with, but then you have things like doubles and doppelgangers, which also tie into that idea. 
of polypsychism of the idea of having multiple souls and multiple selves. And uh, I think that seems to be what's going on, at least in some of these cases as well. I mean, some of the cryptozoological stuff, I don't know how to reconcile if I don't go down that route. Dogman is a good example of that. This yeah. sort of werewolf. Yeah, and, and and it a lot of the Dogman stuff doesn't make sense as a flesh and blood creature because there's just no precedent in the fossil record. But if you start framing it in, you know, European werewolf folklore, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Or at least you can make it make sense, right? Dogs again being a psychopomp figure, I should reiterate that. But um cats but I, I, too. Cats too, yeah. With, yeah, you know, uh, we had uh, co, yeah. Um uh, we had on Raven Dana was on um, Dreamland and last week and um, or she, and she has a cat that showed up out of nowhere that's a incredibly weird and wonderful animal who shows up on is, is on the show with her so and you know this is a very very unusual animal so that that happens it does happen. Well, and, you know, the experience of, of Co with Anne. Um, yeah, exactly. Is, is, That's right. Know, sounds a lot like that as well. Um, so if I look at the issue of doubles and doppelgangers specifically, I mean, they're all throughout the UFO literature of people seeing themselves above flying, aboard flying saucers or individuals like yourself who have been reported by locating. Um, and for the longest time in a lot of different cultures, seeing yourself or someone seeing you in a different place, having a doppelganger experience was considered a a sign of death because the implication was that an aspect of your soul was loose enough that death may be on its way. Um, I don't think that's always the case. I think that there are probably a lot of different States that can make your soul go off wandering or a portion of your soul go off wandering. But what I find interesting, this is a little bit difficult to articulate, but I'll try to walk everyone through it, is that the human soul has so often been conceptualized as being an orb of light. And we see these orbs of light across all paranormal phenomena, but of course, we certainly see them in the UFO descriptions where they appear in the sky as orbs of light. And these orbs of light in other contexts were often seen as death omens, which ties them in with the doppelganger idea. If this is, Or if the orb of light is a soul, it might be your soul, and when you see it, it's a death omen, just the same way as seeing your doppelganger might be a death omen. But then you have these curious encounters where people will see UFOs and especially light phenomena described as UFOs before their deaths as well. And I kind of wonder if maybe we shouldn't reframe in certain contexts, in certain contexts, this light phenomena as part of the doppelganger phenomena where people are seeing an aspect of themselves that suddenly become untethered because death is on the way. You know, it's interesting. I've had that happen so many times and I, I, I won't be long since dead if, if it was death on the way. And you well, know, the interesting yeah. thing about it, I want to tell you, I didn't see, I didn't see anything relating to this in the book, but one of the things that happens is they, when I'm going to come out of my body, there's a, a sharp uh, something that hits me right back here, right behind my, right at the top of my spine, where the spine and the neck connect. And I can feel what feel like locks unlocking around my spine, down, down my spine. And then I just roll right out of the body, just like that. Easy as pie. That sounds like it might be something related to, you know, Kundalini phenomena. I'm sure you're well, familiar they do, with that. It's done. Yeah. It's not It's not something I can do. I can't do it. It's done to me. 
and and it and and it's always when the OBE has some kind of purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, they they want a mission accomplished, and I end up being the one doing the mission, which is really cool. I mean, I wish it gave me more missions like that. Well, you know, there is towards the end. I have a pretty lengthy epilogue. It wasn't really intended to be an epilogue, but my my public my uh, not my publisher, my editor said, you know, Josh, maybe this should be an epilogue because it's a little bit of a, of a digression. Um, but I have an epilogue pertaining to headlessness as a motif and the idea of because um, you you find a lot of things without heads in the paranormal, which I can't make. Pardon the pun, heads or do, tails. Do you on. have the? I, I didn't. I must say that I don't remember this part of the book. Um. I'm looking for it. I didn't see an epilogue. I, I might have sent you an earlier one. You might you have. You might have anyway, your hands on okay, an earlier one. Does it, does it relate? Do you talk about the deadhead of the Knights Templar? Uh, I, I talk a little bit about Mimir, which is some people think that's where that idea might have come from as well, that Norse god well, Tell Mimir. us about that. I'm fascinated. Well, Mimir oh, was... Oh, my listeners are too. <laughs> Mimir was... Um, he had his head separated and he was carried around and continued to offer advice, uh, the Norse God long after his head was decapitated. And some people even go for so far as to speculate that might be where we get the word memory from. But, uh, you would obviously, this idea of headlessness you see across a lot of different cultures, and it's often been used as shorthand for enlightenment or, you know, we think about the, you know, the headless right in occultism, but even, the Celtic cult of the head was a big thing. Um, And it's this idea that consciousness is sort of liberated from the physical self in near death experiences. One of the things that people say is that they're often have 360 degree vision, which certainly I would think seems to speak to the same headless idea. But I found this really to be most compelling in, in some of the medieval artwork of, of cephalophores, which are, saints who have been decapitated but continue to persevere and the interesting question that was always asked by artists is well where do you put the dang halo in that case do you leave the halo at the heads do you put it with the head that's been severed you know headless saints carrying their heads and still talking are a feature in catholic mythology uh, oh absolutely it's 120 saints or something it's a ton of them it's a ton of them um, yeah I've seen a list of 70, but I, I, I'm sure that there's probably more. There's probably so, more, yeah. So what is, this, what is this motif really driving at? And I think that the suggestion that's offered by that, that halo question posed by the artist, you know, where do we put the halo? Do we put the halo where the shoulders were with the head? I think that's really what this, this cephalophore idea is getting at as, as, a, as a metaphor. It's this idea of liberating consciousness, the idea of the inner light, the halo, continuing and persevering on and it's interesting i don't know if it's a coincidence or not but it's interesting to see that you know we're often conditioned to think of halos as being circular but pretty much every ufo shape that you can find has some precedent as a halo chevron halos diamond halos triangular halos these have all been depicted in medieval art to different extents so i think it's a really elegant metaphor for this idea of of the self being liberated after death and that's sort of a sort of a headlessness. So headlessness of, of the body is death, but headlessness of the, the immortal self becomes a sort of, again, ego death. You know, ego death is a huge thing because if you, if you get beyond the ego, the ego, it seems to me it's part of, it's a physical part of the physical body. And there's another someone there 
who, uh, when the ego goat is put to sleep by drugs or by long standing meditation practices or something else, suddenly the other silent part of us is not silent anymore. And it turns out to be living in the world in a completely different way. And it seems to, it's, it's almost like it's pulling the strings, right? I mean, we'd like to think yeah, that the exactly. ego's... It's back yeah, It's they're pulling the strings. That's very yeah. well said. It's, it's, we'd like to think of the ego as, as being in the driver's seat. It may very well be that way, but I think that the road was designed here. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's too much in the driver's seat. And uh, they... Uh, it it's you know maybe that's the problem in a sense i mean i i i really do think it is and i think that i mean this is one of the reasons why one of the things i was most enamored with coming out of this project was this idea of polypsychism talking about having multiple cells within yourself i think that that is a is a very healthy way to interpret a lot of the conflict that we have i mean how many times has your head said one thing and your heart said another you know we sort of still engage in that sort of description, but we don't talk about it as a truth. You know, we, we sort of use it as a convenient shorthand, but I think if we sort of embrace that as a possible truth, like there are actually two or more things inside me that want different things and, you know, maybe acting in different interests. I think that might be a healthy way to sort of reconcile a lot of the, the emotions that we go through on a day-to-day basis. Joshua, this is volume one. It seems huge. But it says right on the cover, volume one. What are you up to? What, where are you going now? With well, this? Uh, there's volume one and volume two. I don't know if, if you had, had a chance to get your hands on volume two. No, but, I didn't know it was proper. Oh, <laughs> <You didn't> <laughs> yeah, uh, there's, I'm, I'm remiss. Um, yeah, there's a whole Whitley streamer chapter in volume two. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that. No, I yeah. don't have volume two. Well, I I'll don't have, have it. I'll Send have it to me. We'll have you on again. I'll, I will talk enough. About nothing except the Whitley Streamer chapter. <laughs> okay, I will. You know, you're, I will. Like the, you're like you're you have the publicity skills of Jeff Kripal. He was on the show a, a couple of weeks ago, and the morning of the interview, I a friend just by chance wrote sent out a uh, an email saying that Jeff's new book had been published. <laughs> Yeah, that's, and yeah. so do send me volume two because you're you're such a good guest and you're so much fun to be with. Well, I, I just made myself. We've always myself. enjoyed you. When I look back on the old shows, the comment sections are just loaded because we have fun, and it's the kind of fun we like on this show because we're we're actually way out at the edge, and and we're cool with it. We're cool with it. Yeah. Well, that's and, what I always come to is is. If if I if I'm having a conversation about UFOs and the, the phenomenon, and I end up talking about anti gravity and levitation and warp drives and stuff, it's the wrong conversation to be having. When I have conversations like this that are you know trying to figure out more about ourselves and about the nature of reality, yeah. like those are so much more fulfilling for me. Well, I've had conversations with people who have to talk about things like. Uh, members of the military having their brains destroyed and in, in, when in conflict with this. So it is definitely got a big time physical presence and it can be very dangerous. You don't want to shoot at them. 
It's bad news. They don't like it, and they do have the means to ruin your day if you do so. Don't forget that, folks. Um, there's a guy, uh, what's his name? Um, well, he doesn't, is, uh, he, he, um, he, he shot one of them, one of the visitors who had come, come into his, his little apartment, which overlooked a, a hangar that he owned. He was, uh, had a small airport of his own and he had attracted them. He'd gotten them to come to the airport by using, um, using lights to cause a UFO to land on his runway. But then when they came into the hangar, and his apartment was over the hangar, uh, they didn't like that. So he didn't like that so much. He saw these weird little creatures walking around in his hangar. And he, so he got himself a gun. And one of them showed up at the foot of his bed one night, and he shot it, and it blew up. And uh, then he was haunted by it. He was haunted by it, by its spirit. It, it, because it was still there and it was very pissed off. And he ended up dead in the end. I believe you talk about that in a new world, right? Yeah, I do. It, it, it's, uh, uh, I, I believe I do. Yeah. But that's the point is that this is dangerous and it, it yes. has a big time physical component. And there's, there's stuff on airplanes. There's stuff in people's bodies because these metals have been used in medical to improve, uh, the tensile strength, strength of medical implants and things. We, the, the physical side of this is a huge part of our world. It's underneath the surface, and so is the physical danger there. Yeah, it, it it definitely has a strong component in the physical, and I think it just it's sort of that that's sort of what I'm driving at is, is that it challenges us to reevaluate something that we think is as basic as physical and non-physical, right? It really does. Yeah, it really yeah, does. Direct challenge to that. Well, look, look we're going to do volume two soon. All right. Yes. And send me a copy of it. Uh, I will. And physical and non-physical. Where are we? We have examined this in a whole new and totally, in my opinion, my humble opinion, totally fascinating way today. It has been lots and lots of fun, as it always is with Joshua. Um, let me read Jack Hunter's uh, editor of Greening the Paranormal, Exploring the Ecology of Extraordinary Experiences. Joshua Cutchin builds an argument for the centrality of death in all manner of paranormal experiences. This book is a bold and innovative contribution to the Fortean research and scholarship and a kaleidoscopic expedition into the wilds of the paranormal ecosystem and so was this interview and it sure was fun gotcha I, thank you well i've been really looking forward to this and i'm I'm sad that it's over but we'll we'll come back for part two we'll do it soon again All just right. get me the other book and we'll do it a, a, across the turn of the year yes sir absolutely <laughs> joshua cutchin's website is joshuacutchin.com to remind you yet again the book is ecology of souls and this is Dreamland, and you're all subscribers listening to this part of it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Tell your friends. This is a fun and wonderful place. There's only one unknown country in Dreamland in this world anyway. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. 
Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.